few years ago, I went up a mountain in the Pyrenees with a tent, nine bottles of water and almost no food. It didn't feel strange or alarming to be spending four nights on the mountain with only two apples, a handful of nuts, no phone and no watch and those nine bottles of water. Up there alone on my first night, though, after the sun had gone down, I heard a strange sound. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Have you ever had a profound, mystical encounter with a natural world? Speaking with us from the United Kingdom is Ginny Reddy, whose new book, Wanderland, explores and celebrates her connection with the magic of the British landscape. We also talk about identity, the ways in which we can connect with nature, and the difficulties in discussing transcendent experiences. So now, here is Ginny Reddy. Well, welcome to the podcast, Ginny. Thank you. It's great to be talking to you, Jeremy. So your new book, Wanderland, is out in the UK, and soon it will be published in the USA. It's, it's a book about connecting with the magic in the landscape, as the blurred states. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? It's about my search for the magical in the landscape in, in Britain. So in a nutshell, I was seeking a more spiritual relationship with the nature around me. I wanted to connect with what I would call the sentient forces of nature. And um, I'd been a travel writer for quite a long time. And on my travels, I'd had opportunities to meet people from uh, indigenous cultures. And when I met these people, I was always struck by the way that for them it was perfectly natural to experience a relationship with, with the sky or with the birds or the trees, with the elements. And it was a, a kind of two-way relationship. And I, I found this quite beautiful and quite, uh, quite compelling. And I wanted to know if it might be possible for somebody like me, a regular person, to be able to begin to glimpse this kind of connection for myself. So in a way, that's so the seeds for the, the journey in part. Mm -hmm. and, and when you say for me, a regular person, you mean someone who lives in kind of like an urban or suburban setting, someone that by virtue of living in civilized society, you don't really have access to um, the natural world in, 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 in ways that indigenous people might. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a shaman. I'm not a medicine woman. I don't have those gifts or skills. Mm -hmm. So I think I mean it in that sense rather than geographically. I see. So where, where did your travels take you? So overall, um, I went from Cornwall all the way up to Scotland, uh, from Northumberland to Wales. But the journey unfolded in quite an organic way. I wasn't focused a priori on going to this place or that place. And I wasn't I wasn't so destination focused. It was more that something drew me to each place. So that's how I ended up going to all of these places. It was more part of the story is about how I came to be there and what led me to these places. Mm. 
you mentioned, um, I think in one of the earlier chapters, um, you, I think we're on a subway and you saw an advertisement for a labyrinth. Is that right? Yeah, well, kind of um, on the London Underground and some of the stations you can see, um, you can see labyrinths or drawings of labyrinths on, on the walls. And I saw one and that got me thinking. And then I came home and I opened up my laptop and I think I Googled labyrinths and I found something called the Worldwide Labyrinth Locator. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And, and so that pulled me into into the world of labyrinths. And, um, and then I saw one and I thought, this is extraordinary. I want to go and visit this labyrinth and I want to do what you're meant to do when you see a labyrinth, which is to ask a question of it. And I thought that would be a nice way to start the book. Mm. So that's how that chapter started. So what, what, um, so when I, when I think of labyrinth, um, I think of, I don't know, aristocratic estate, um, two meter high, uh, shrubs, you know, and like little paths. Is that what this was or was it something else? Um, no, this was actually um, on a nature reserve in Cornwall overlooking the sea. So it was a labyrinth in the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went uh, down there to Cornwall and I stayed for a few days and I kind of had it to myself, which was an incredible privilege uh, because this was a private nature reserve. And it was overlooking the sea? It was overlooking the sea, yeah. Mm. So that that chapter, I call it To the Oracle on the Sea, it was all about my experience of, of, of going there and discovering the labyrinth and trying to have a – trying to relate to this labyrinth and trying to ask questions of this labyrinth and, and then, you know, trying to find answers and feeling, I guess, a little bit frustrated because I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted. So mm-hmm. one thing I learned in, 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 this, in this book is that expectation doesn't always meet reality and that the wonder and the surprises and the magic happens when you're not looking. Right. So I, if I'm not mistaken, that chapter ends with a, a little bit of disappointment, um, as, as you just kind of alluded to. And later in the book, you've circled back to the labyrinth. And it's one of the things I wanted to talk about is, you know, if you open yourself up to discovery, if you open yourself up to, I guess, being receptive to serendipity, like if, if you have a plan to go travel somewhere and you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to see that and you know, have the, you know, this long list of plans and expectations, there's a good chance that you're bound to be upset or disappointed with your travel plans. But if you go into travel without having this kind of preset list of expectations and goals and things you want to do and blah, 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 um, you're open to kind of discovering what the world offers you, then, of course, it's hard to be disappointed. And in many ways, you seem to discover something that you normally wouldn't have expected to discover. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean... Yes, it does. It makes complete sense. Um, I think when I was setting out, I my intention was to connect with this magical other in the landscape. And for me, that me- meant I wasn't even entirely sure at the beginning. I was thinking, do I mean the spirit of the land? Do I mean this sentient essence in all living things? Do I mean the divine? I wasn't entirely sure, but I was seeking this deeper communion. And so I decided that when I was going to travel – Rather than consult a map and a compass, I was going to rely on my inner radar. So that meant relying on or following my curiosity and following my fascination and tuning into to my intuition and, and deep listening. 
So in that sense, it, you know, I was opening up already. I was open to whatever might present itself to me. But on the other hand, I'm also human. Mm-hmm. And it's quite hard to entirely let go of an attachment to an outcome. Mm. Although I think I, I did that reasonably well. And so in your book, you mentioned phrases here that are very similar to what you just said. You, you referred to wanting to kind of roam with juicier intent. Um, you wanted to seek the wild unseen. You wanted to connect with the, with the natural world in, in, a, in a deeper way. And it's interesting as the book starts out with this very <laughs> kind of a, a great scene of, of you in, in the mountains in, in the Pyrenees, right? And you're yeah. wanting to kind of connect with the natural world in a powerful way. And I think, you know, that that happens. Can you explain to us this wild unseen that you saw in the Pyrenees in, in the opening section? Okay, I'll try. Okay. I'll try. So I went um, to the Pyrenees. I was there on a, a, a wild camping and fasting experience. So a version of a vision quest which you go into nature mm-hmm. to connect more deeply with the forces of nature, minus all the distractions of everyday life. So I went up there and I was led up there by a guide who was a Basque shaman. And when I got to this spot that I was going to spend the next five nights and four days on, he, he went down the mountain and as he was leaving to say goodbye, he said, um, see that forest over there? There's, there's something in the forest. Bye. See you in five days. So there I was on my own wondering what on earth was in the forest. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I really wanted to be there. I'd longed for this experience. I'd done something like this before in the Sinai Desert. So I kind of knew what I was in for and I, I really embraced it. And what I had wanted to, 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 my intention when I went up there was to hear nature's voice. But you have to be careful what you ask for, right? So that night... When the sun went down and, you know, darkness fell, I, I began to feel fearful, as you sometimes do in the night when you're on your own without your, you know, without a phone, without a watch, without anything to connect you to somebody else. Because this, this shaman was, you know, maybe two hours away. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was literally on my own up this mountain. And then on the other side of my tent, you know, suddenly I noticed First of all, I noticed that all the night sounds went really quiet. I couldn't hear the birds anymore or or the crickets or whatever it is you hear up in the mountain, you know, at night or the wind. Everything went very still. And then on the other side of my tent, right where my ear was, um, I heard a very strange, mysterious noise. And I was terrified. I could swear blind it wasn't a bird or the crackling of a branch and I'd heard no footsteps. So what I heard terrified me and it was it felt like this mysterious disembodied voice. And it sounds crazy to say these things, but that is what I heard. And to this day, I'm convinced it, it wasn't um, something human. And although I was terrified that night, you know, in the days that followed, I began to ask questions what was this voice and might I be able to hear some version of it again because when when experiences like this that happen they kind of expand your field of perception and you want to know more or at least I did so that was another seed that was sown 
that made me want to go on this journey and write this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard to to talk about some of these experiences. Um, you know, many of us have had these experiences where you're out in the woods and they're just you feel in some ways connected to the landscape to to nature and it's so damn hard to articulate the magic that you've experienced right it's so damn hard to do that and we're fearful of i think talking about them with other people uh, for fear of sounding i don't know um new agey or crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy right? alternative hippie woo woo all of those things and in, when I was writing the book, I, I felt that for, for a long while when I was writing it, oh my God, what are people going to think of me when I write this? And it was very hard to stay, to stay true to what had happened to, to my experiences and to not give in to the urge to, to temper things. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately... You know, I began to throw off that critic, and ultimately, there's a real power in speaking your truth and talking about these things because you give permission to other people to talk about these things. And one of the the lovely things that has happened that I've noticed in the feedback that I've received from people is that it's exactly those things, talking about those things, that resonates with people. So there's something to be said for feeling free about speaking about these things. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was uh, Nan Shepard, or maybe it was John Muir. I don't. I don't remember. Um, but one of them made a comment uh, about you can't understand a mountain. You don't know a mountain unless you spend a night on a mountain, right? And so when we read Shepard or Muir, people who have spent time, you know, a lot of time on mountains and alone in nature. They have a reverence and a respect uh, for nature that I suspect people who haven't had those experiences just don't understand, right? So when people say, "Oh, woo woo," or or hippy dippy, or tree hugger, or whatever, what you know, I, I just I I don't think they get it. I I absolutely agree. I agree. I think. I think there's no there's no replacing firsthand experience. I think when you've had this experience, as you say, of, of reverence and of wonder, when you've had an immersive experience in nature, in the landscape, a sustained immersive experience, I think you're much more open to these ideas because you've lived them yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in the book uh, the late Thomas Berry's idea um uh, referencing, I think his his essay or his book, Spiritual Ecology. He's a an important figure in the environmentalism movement, um, especially as it relates to these ideas of like spirituality and connectedness. And I think he, um, you know, one of the important figures to say, look, there's you know, the natural world is a manifestation of God, of sacredness, of of the divine. And people spend a lot of time talking about his ideas, and we're, we're not academics on that level. But um, and you reference him in, in your book, like, what did you learn from from Barry and his ideas? Um, how did they speak to you? He wrote one essay in this anthology called "Spiritual Ecology: uh, The Cry of the Earth," and I am no Barry scholar, so forgive me if I'm giving you a kind of potted version of. Thomas Berry as I understand it. But I know that he was big on wonder. Mm-hmm. 
And as I as I understand it, he sees people as one uh, expression of the earth, and he believed that in order to heal the earth, we need to recognize the sacredness of every other expression of the earth, be that a tree or an animal or a bird or a flower or whatever that might be, and that everything together, all of us together, we're this symphony of species, and we're all just part of a sentient Mother Earth celebrating herself through us and that together with other planets the earth is in turn an expression of the universe celebrating itself through the planets and so on so that behind everything is this intelligent animate sentient mysterious force Um, and he believed that if we can see that there's both a visible world and a cosmic world we'd have a far richer and more meaningful existence and I think it's that that really spoke to me because I've always felt that, you know, inherently I felt that from a young age. So I think I think those thoughts resonated with me. Yeah, it reminds me so much. Um, and perhaps these ideas predate the the 19th century, but they re- remind me so much of, you know, what many of in in Britain many of the the romantics started to to talk about towards the end of the 18th and the early 19th century. And people like Wordsworth were, um, are you know, articulating these very ideas, going out into the landscape, seeing the divine in, in the landscape, experiencing this kind of deep spirituality by going out in nature, abandoning the city and getting in touch with what it means to be human. As have people from indigenous cultures over, over centuries, um, except they might perhaps have articulated it in a different way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, some of these ideas come late to the West. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you've written uh, another book, uh, Wild Times, about your connection with nature in um, in Britain. And you referenced this earlier in the conversation that uh, you were involved with travel writing. Like, what is your background in travel writing and how does kind of nature fold into that history? So I started out, initially I started out in book publishing and I came to journalism a bit later in life and uh, became a travel features writer. And when I was traveling more and more, I began to be drawn to wild, wilder landscapes. And when I visited these wild landscapes, I mean, for instance, in the Northwest Frontier Province and northern areas of Pakistan and, and places like Namibia and New Zealand. And when I visited these places, I found I was always drawn to meeting people from indigenous cultures and learning about their ways and how they connect with the earth. And I think from that grew my desire to focus a little bit more on landscape and nature and ways that we might connect with, um, with the natural world. And so that's where the first book came from. And it was partly a narrative, partly a guidebook, so kind of a hybrid. And in it are um, uh, many ways that people can go out and connect with the natural world. I mean, each chapter is a specific experience that somebody can do with a guide or with a small venture. So that book is much more, I guess, tourism focused. Now that you bring it up, like how, how might someone connect with the natural world? Well, I think it depends on, on yourself and in your, your interests. I, I always say it's a good idea to start with where you're at with your own interests and to follow your curiosity and your fascination. You know, so for some people it's very much about, it's about wildlife. For some people it's about bird songs. For some people it's about going for walks in nature. 
for some people it's it's about tree hugging for some people it's about you know swimming and wild swimming um, i mean there are so many ways to connect with the natural world and i don't think we have to be prescriptive about it and i think it's also important to remember that the relationship that you have with the natural world is between you and the natural world so nobody can judge it so if all it, if all it means to you is that you're in a tower block and you open your window and you feel the wind on your face well well that's your connection with nature and it's it it doesn't mean anything less than somebody who who you know has access to acres and acres of land mm-hmm. it's still you're still talking about this intimate relationship yeah, that is a, a a good point to remember. Before we started talking in an email exchange, you'd mentioned to me that talking about nature writing, uh, that might be a, a thorny subject. <laughs> and, um, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but uh, what do you mean by that? How How is uh, nature writing and travel writing a, a thorny subject? And what are, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I think it's funny because... Um, you know, like I say, I was a travel writer for a long time, and I think I probably see myself as, as somewhere in between. But for my friends who are travel writers now, I think many of them see me more as a nature writer, or that's how they would describe me. Whereas people within nature writing and nature writers, especially people coming from a more conventional wildlife or conservation-focused background, would definitely call me a travel writer. You know, they're very mm-hmm. emphatic about that. So I find that quite quite funny and quite interesting and uh, at times quite confusing because, um, um, you know, I'd, I'd say I write from a more eco-spiritual perspective, so maybe there should be a sub-genre. But I think whether you're writing, you know, whether you're writing travel writing or, 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 or you're writing from a, a personal perspective, you're talking about your first-hand experience and encounters, whether that's about landscape or a place or culture or the natural world, you know, you're, you're exploring. So I'm, I, I kind of get a little bit bored of, of genre, of genre mm-hmm. and the way we limit people, try to put them in boxes. Um, and I think it's, it's just really nice just to write and right. to not have to shove it into, into a box or a label with these artificial distinctions, how you described <laughs> some of your, your colleagues referring to you as a travel writer and the others referring to you as a nature writer. It's, it's like a game of hot potato. <laughs> Nobody wants to hold Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I, I come across, I feel that too, when it comes to my background, you know, some people call me, say I'm British and others would say I'm Canadian and some people call me Indian. And, you know, I just, I, I'm never entirely sure myself what to describe myself as. I, even I struggle with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a similar thing, you know? And we can hear it in your voice. Uh, I was going to comment on it. It's a wonderful mixture of, of accents from, from around the world. And this chameleon-like nature is something uh, that not a lot of people can claim. You know, and there's something to be said about that, I think. Yeah, I think I think you you've expressed it very well when you say chameleon-like nature, because that is, I mean, that's great. That's exactly how I feel. When I go to Canada, where I grew up, um, so I was born in London. I grew up uh, in Canada. I moved there when I was seven. My mum and dad are Indian from South Africa. Um, when I go to Canada, you know, I, I love I love it. Half my heart is there. But at the same time, I don't entirely feel Canadian. I feel more British maybe sometimes. And then when I'm in Britain and I speak and I'm aware that I have, a, you know, a Canadian accent or a touch of a Canadian accent I, I I'm very aware that I'm I wasn't raised here and you know among 
I guess you could call it the Indian diaspora in Britain. You know, am I Indian? Am I not Indian? Can I call myself Indian? I wasn't born there, but it's my ancestral heritage. And, you know, South Africa is my parents' homeland. Well, what's my relationship with South Africa? So I'm starting to think about these things more and more. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, always at once at home and in a way. And I think these themes also, um, they remind me as you as you put them, kind of remind me of the stories um, that Pico Iyer speaks about. Yes. Yes, I'm, he puts it really well. He talks about, I think, having... Um, more than one pair of eyes with which to see the world. Mm. And I think that's it, really. In fact, he was one of my first influences, and I remember picking up one of his books. Um, I think it was Video Night in Kathmandu. Oh, that's such a great When book. I was in university. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and being astonished because here was this guy, and I think um, I, I think he was – I can't remember if he was born in Britain or born in India or moved to Britain – and then he lived in California, but he was South Asian in California in, in a way that resonated with me, that background. Um, and I, I found that really interesting. Mm-hmm. Can you um, read uh, a passage from the book for us? Okay. So this is from the first chapter, um, and it call, it's called What Happens Up the Mountain Doesn't Always Stay Up the Mountain. <laughs> A few years ago, I went up a mountain in the Pyrenees with a tent, nine bottles of water, and almost no food. I wasn't being naive or irresponsible. I simply wanted to commune with the wild in the raw. It's a custom that has become quite fashionable these days in certain circles, even though it is as old as the hills. It wasn't the first time I'd done something like this, so I welcomed the experience. I kind of had an idea of what I was in for, in the way that if you've ever fallen madly in love, you know what it will feel like, even though every time it is completely different. This kind of experience wasn't about challenging myself. No, it was about quietening down, going inward and listening. No special skill required, which is just as well, because I didn't have any other than the ability to enjoy my own company. It didn't feel strange or alarming to be spending four nights on the mountain with only two apples, a handful of nuts, no phone and no watch, and those nine bottles of water. Anyway, I needed the time out. I had a lot to get off my chest, and I figured in the mountains I could cry my heart out. Up there alone on my first night, though, after the sun had gone down, I heard a strange sound. It made my heart pound in a way that was nearly as frightening as the sound itself. That unearthly whisper on the other side of the canvas, well... My brain couldn't make sense of it. The guide who'd walked me up here had called the mountain Hartsamendi, or Bear Mountain, in English. He spoke of the Lord of the Forest, a strange creature, the love child of Basque myth and the Pyrenean wilds. But I hadn't actually expected to hear its voice, if that's what it was. It had come out of the dark from nowhere. It was urgent and somehow sentient. It was punctuated by pregnant silences that made me hold my breath as a wave of fear flooded my body. What do you do when you're in a blind panic? Me? I reached for a charm that was stashed in the tent pocket, and I began to rock back and forth. Under my breath, I muttered in a small, scared voice, I come in peace. For once, I was too frightened to feel silly or self-conscious, my usual default setting. 
Outside my tiny tent, weird discombobulated voice aside, the mountain fell silent. No more gusts of wind, and whatever night creatures lived here and in the thick, now menacing woods beside me were holding their breath. I'd heard no footsteps, no crackling of bushes, and anyway, I'd been rooted to this spot on the flat top of this peak like a landing strip for an alien craft, high in the mountain since noon. A mare and her foal had trotted up earlier to check me out or welcome me or show their concern for this strange woman stranded in their territory. I wasn't sure which, but the only sign of human life I detected until now was the tinkle of a shepherd's bell in the valley down past the waterfalls and the emerald forest I'd walked through to get here. A long minute or two after it began, the voice stopped, just like that. The mountain exhaled, the night sounds, noticeable only in their absence, started up again. Over the next four days and nights up here, I thought about my strange encounter and tried to make sense of it. Had some presence that made no sense to the rational side of my brain given me exactly what I'd hoped and prayed for before I walked up that mountain? I'd wanted, I'd yearned with my whole being to hear nature's voice. Is that what I'd heard? Was it some kind of spirit? The Lord of the Forest? Who knows? It's great. I think it illustrates the book's tone and the approach. And, you know, I think we get a sense from that, that this book is um, unlike any other travel book you'll find on, on the shelves. Uh, it's out in the UK already. And I think it comes out in the United States at the end of, of June, if I'm not mistaken. It comes out in the States on the 30th of June and in Canada as well. Very good. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast can you let us know where we can track you down online yeah i'm on twitter um at Ginny underscore ready spelled j-i-n-i underscore r-e-d-d-y and on instagram as at Ginny ready 20 and i have a website as well uk. great we'll put all those links in the episode show notes and well, thank you so much, and uh, we wish you luck with uh, the launch of, of the book in the United States, and I hope it's going well for you in the United Kingdom. Thank you. I am I really have enjoyed talking to you, and it's going pretty well, I have to say, all things considered. it's you know I hadn't anticipated launching a book in lockdown, so that's been an interesting experience. <laughs> You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at Patreon.com forward slash TravelWritingWorld. Thanks for your support.